Well, well, well. Lost your way again? <laughs> no worries, my friend. You're always welcome here. Come on in. I was just about to deal with some unfinished business in our backyard. Nothing to worry about, I assure you. But you didn't come here to endure petty little small talk. Settle down and let us begin. They say ignorance is bliss. When a tech-savvy couple decides to convert their home into a parlor of comedies, an apparent glitch thrusts them into a spiraling paranoia. Their struggle makes me wonder, do we want to know what truly lies in the dark? Or is it better to stay unaware of the demons that lurk around us? It's not as crazy as it sounds, I swear. A few months back, I needed a new phone, and my husband discovered that we could get a free Google Home Mini. It seemed pretty harmless, but he is the kind of guy who falls down the rabbit hole with his hobbies. And it turned out, home automation was a new hobby. He works in tech, so it made sense that he'd be interested. So, begrudgingly, I agreed to let him get some things for around the house. It started with the lights. A few of those fancy lights that can be controlled through your phone were cool. Once we had replaced the lights in each room, we could use voice commands. Okay, Google, bathroom lights on. Okay, Google, bedroom lights off. I had to admit, it was pretty cool to be able to turn off the lights from my phone. But of course, he got bored with that. He got into scripting and webcore and it all became more advanced. Suddenly, he was able to code it so the lights were off during the sunniest parts of the day, which saved on our electric bill significantly, so I was happy. He set up smart devices for our TV, and he even got a door sensor for our apartment door and used our phones as a point of detection. Like the other things, having the hub read whether our phones were present turned out to be really cool. As soon as the door sensed being opened, and at least one of our phones was present, the lights would come on when we entered. It was a godsend when I was carrying tons of groceries. I did set limits, though. I didn't want to set up any cameras. I like to sit around naked when no one else is home. And besides, cameras would make me feel like I was being surveilled. I didn't want the door to have a smart deadbolt because, well, I only trust technology so far. I don't want someone to be able to hack their way into my door. Call me old-fashioned, but no matter what he told me about the steps they took to encrypt those, the idea just made me uneasy. So he dropped it. I'm getting sidetracked, probably because I'm shaken. One of the scripts he set up when we got the door sensor was that if ever our door opened and neither of our phones was present, it sent us a text message. The first time I got this text, it freaked me out. I was at work, and it was right after my husband generally leaves for work. He works overnights. A good 15 minutes after he usually left, I received the text. Your door has been opened. Neither connected device is detected as being present. I was training a class of new hires at the time when my watch vibrated. 
Seeing those words on the screen made me feel ill. About a minute or two later, I got a duplicate of the same text. Your door has been opened. Neither connected device is detected as being present. I decided to text my husband, just in case. But he texted me first. Hey, I know you just got the door text. I forgot my badge and left my phone in the car when I ran to grab it. Love you. I kicked myself for feeling so relieved. That meant that I was truly scared in the first place. I feel relatively safe in our smallish city, so I don't know why it wound me up like it did. Fast forward to this past Friday, two weeks later. I received the text right around the same time as before. Your door has been opened. Neither connected device is detected as being present. This time, I didn't even flinch. I kept training my class and assumed it was just my husband running back inside again. I went about my day and quickly forgot about it. It wasn't until I was driving home that I even remembered it. I pulled into our driveway and as I killed my engine, I decided to text him just to be safe. I saw that I had somehow missed a call from my husband. Right around the same time I had received the text. Of course. He probably called me to explain since he was running late and didn't want to text and drive. I gathered my purse, laptop, bag, and coat and came in. My cat was mewing at the door when I walked in as usual. He's always very needy for attention when I get home. I picked him up and carried him around while I went about my routine. I dropped my purse and bag by the door, got the mail, locked the door, fed the cat, and stripped to get in the shower. I long ago learned that there is no point in shutting the bathroom door when I shower, because Kitty will just cry incessantly until I let him in. So, as per usual, I left the bathroom door open a crack and was not disturbed when it was a bit more open than I'd left it. I wrapped myself up in a towel and saw that I had a Facebook message from my husband. How was your day? I smiled. He was always so sweet when he checked in on me. Good. Had a training class, but they're a pretty good group. Yours? Nah, you know. You let out class early, though? No, we went until four. He didn't say anything. I said, what? Didn't you come home around 2.50? No, I got home at like 4.30. I literally just got out of the shower. Why? And then I remembered the text. The door opened at 2.52. I left at 2.40, he said. Did you run back inside for anything? No. This is weird. I, I don't like it. I looked around my home. Suddenly, the stillness and quiet were not so comforting. I felt like I was being watched. I looked around but saw no signs that anyone had been in. I grabbed the knife I kept in my purse and walked around the house, opening each door, looking in any place it would be plausible for a human to hide. There was no one. He texted me again. I know I'm probably just being paranoid, but can you go somewhere? To Emily's maybe? Or the library? I don't want you to be home alone. 
I told him, I'll go over to M's if it'll make you feel better. But I just checked because of the text. There's no one here. Please go somewhere. I would feel better. Okay, I said. I just need to get dressed. I'll message you when I leave. This has me a little freaked out too. I threw on my undies, jeans, bra, and a sweater and grabbed my laptop, phone, and purse. Just as I reached for the doorknob, I realized the door was unlocked. Here's the thing. I know I locked it. I know I did. I even remember Kitty weakly battling at the chain when I put it on. I'm not crazy. I know it was locked right after I put down my purse. And then when I got out of the shower, it wasn't. Someone was in my home. I went to the library at my husband's request, and he ended up coming home early. We searched the apartment together. I was armed with a knife. He was armed with his katana. He's just the best kind of nerd. We found nothing. Not a single sign that anyone was here except the text we had received. It's Sunday today. We left a message for the landlord to see if perhaps they had to enter for some reason. Though they've always been great about giving a few days notice or calling us if it's more urgent. I'm hoping it was them though. I guess I'll find out tomorrow. In the meantime, what do we do? Is there any avenue we haven't explored? I may just have to concede and get a security camera of some sort. Other than that, I'm racking my brain, trying to think of a plausible explanation that still makes me feel safe. For many, Childbirth is one of the most beautiful events life can offer. However, despite all of our medical breakthroughs, some people still resort to discontinued and risky practices. But we keep doing them, unaware of the terrible outcomes they might conjure. Perhaps, if we knew how they came to be, we would leave them forgotten in time, where they belong. I begged my wife not to have a home birth. She insisted on a midwife. She wanted to have the baby in the water, more natural and more relaxing for the child, she said. Won't the baby drown if it comes out in the water? My wife laughed at me and informed me that infants have a natural instinct to hold their breath. Okay, but what if ours doesn't? My wife just shook her head at me and told me that she had thought this through and she knew she was making the right decision. I didn't want to stress her out while she was pregnant. We had already suffered two miscarriages and I knew if that happened again it might destroy her. So I just agreed to do what she wanted. When the big day came, my wife was nude and lying in a birth pool. The thing cost me over $400, but it was worth it to make her happy. The midwife herself had a really striking appearance. She wore her jet black hair in two braids that hung almost down to her knees. Her skin was a deep olive, her almond-shaped eyes with thick lashes that would have been beautiful, but for the fact that her pupils seemed unnaturally large. She also wore dark plum lipstick and long red nails, filed sharply like talons. I couldn't tell if they were hers 
or if they were the fake ones women get at the salon. I remember thinking it odd that a midwife would have nails like that. I vaguely worried what would happen if she accidentally cut the baby, or my wife's, you know, area. I have a demanding work schedule, so I'm ashamed to say that the first time I ever met the midwife was on the day my daughter was born. She and my wife clearly had developed a close friendship, though. I almost felt like a third wheel the entire time. They seemed to communicate only with glances, subtle gestures, and smiles. I was glad that my wife seemed comfortable, though. That was all that mattered, really. The birth itself was pleasantly uneventful. My wife only had to push three times before my daughter was out. I had expected lots of screaming, crying, and cursing, like you see on TV. But my wife just squatted, furrowed her brows, did some quick shallow breathing, and it was over. Despite my concerns, it was mesmerizing to watch. After the midwife plucked my baby out of the murky wine-colored water, I kissed my wife's damp forehead and quietly thanked her for the gift she'd given me. Finally, after the midwife had wiped my baby down with a damp cloth and swaddled her, my little girl was finally in my arms. I know every father believes his baby is perfect, and I was no different. She was perfect. Pure. I almost didn't notice when the midwife disappeared into the kitchen for a moment and returned with an empty glass. When she returned, she dunked the glass into the tub where my wife was still laying until it was about half full of blood, water, placenta, and possibly a bit of excrement. The woman then looked at me, eyes sparkling, and asked in a low voice if I would like to partake. I asked what she was talking about, and she told me to drink. That's when I asked the woman in somewhat colorful language if she had lost her mind. My wife just smiled calmly and told me it's perfectly normal to consume afterbirth, and it is even expected in many cultures. The midwife's eyes flickered and she handed the glass to my wife. With that, my wife downed the vial concoction in a few gulps. I could feel my lunch rising in my throat, so I averted my eyes. Instead, I looked down at my daughter. She was so beautiful that I almost didn't notice the midwife murmuring quietly. As I looked up, I saw her stroking my wife's hair and mumbling in something that sounded like... German, maybe, or perhaps Greek. I couldn't be sure, but I was relieved when the woman finally took her things and laughed. After that, it was just the three of us. The few days after the birth were a bit difficult for my wife. I've heard of pregnancy sickness, but not post-pregnancy vomiting. I joked with my wife that maybe if she hadn't gulped down her own body bath water, that she wouldn't be feeling this way. Well, when I said that, she gave me a look I've never forgotten. It made my heart shudder, and I felt chilly all over. I had earned a dirty look or ten during the course of our relationship, don't get me wrong, but that look was almost inhuman. I could have sworn her normally soft green irises turned completely black for a moment. My wife began behaving oddly after that. Nothing too bizarre at first, but she would forget things. She'd be walking to the kitchen and then seem as if she didn't know where she was going. Once she left the bathtub running and almost flooded the whole house. She's always been attentive and alert even during pregnancy, so it worried me a bit. But I had heard my sister describe going through a period of what she called mom brain after having my niece and nephew. I figured that might be what it was. The one thing I can say about my wife is that she was a very attentive mother. Before my daughter would even cry, my wife would already have begun walking into a room with either a breast bared or a diaper in hand, never both. She seemed to sense what was needed. Still, I believe something was off. After one night in particular, I knew that this was more than mom brain. Have you ever woken up from your sleep just because you felt someone might be watching you? It's a very uneasy sensation. 
I know it happens all the time to people who are awake, but that feeling to permeate your consciousness is something different. You sort of get cold all over and a feeling that you're no longer safe in your bed. It was around 3 in the morning, I think, when I opened my eyes. I was in bed, but my wife was standing on it, looking down at me. I know it was just the angle, but she looked about 12 feet tall. It took me a moment for my eyes to adjust enough to realize that she had a tea kettle in her hand. Even in the relative darkness, I could see steam pouring out of the spout. What are you doing, sweetie? I asked. My voice protected a confidence and calmness, but I was really trying very hard to maintain control of my bladder. She tilted her head, but then her expression remained unchanged. I boiled water, she said. Want some tea? I was sure she could hear my heart from where she was standing. I told her, no, more loudly than I intended. She sort of laughed and then shook her head. It wasn't her laugh, though. Her laugh was light and sweet and airy. This laugh was deep, hoarse. It had a harshness to it, like an old woman who had smoked since she was a teenager. That's when she reached into her pocket of her robe and pulled out a tea bag. She plopped it in her mouth. Before I could stop her, she raised the kettle and began pouring the steaming water down her throat. I screamed out from a place deep in my soul. I leapt up and snatched it out of her hand, getting ugly burns on my arms and chest in the process. Fuck, fuck, fuck. I don't know if I said it in my head or aloud. I fumbled in the dark for a phone. All I could think was that I had to call an ambulance. I was sure she'd melted the lining of her neck. That's when my wife got off the bed and turned on the light. I didn't look at her. I couldn't. I almost expected to see her face half melted. My hands shook from pain and fear as I struggled to punch 911 into the house phone. Honey, she said, it's all right. Look at me. I'm okay. Her voice sounded normal. I inhaled and looked at where she was standing. Her face was wet and dripping as the result of our little wrestling match over the kettle. Other than that, she looked fine, normal. I looked across the room to where the tea kettle was laying on the hardwood floor. I walked to it and touched it and saw that even though most of the water was gone now, there was still a bit of steam emanating from it. It was still stinging hot. I looked down at my own hand. It looked raw and was starting to blister from where the water had burned me. My wife calmly picked up the kettle and walked downstairs. When she returned, she had several towels, a mop, and a first aid kit. By morning, everything was dry, my hand had been bandaged, and it was almost as if nothing had happened. Incredibly, my daughter slept through the entire incident. I should have left that night, or the next day, but I just kept hoping that things would return to normal. I loved my wife, and I figured we'd get through this. That it was just some sort of mild postpartum or something. It would ease up in a few months. Of course I was wrong. I've never been more wrong about anything, but I can't go back and change it now. About a week or so after the incident with the tea kettle, wife had awoken before four o'clock in the morning to nurse our daughter. Usually I would stay in bed, but this time after a few minutes, I decided to go to the nursery. The curtains were open and the light from the stars gave the room a dreamy appearance. After my wife finished nursing, she fixed her nightgown and smiled down at our baby. From where I stood, I grinned foolishly as well. My wife still didn't notice me standing in the doorway. She was completely fixated on our daughter. I didn't say anything because I knew this was bonding time for them. I didn't want to interrupt. My wife lifted my daughter a bit to press her own face against the small pudgy cheek. It was beautiful, I thought. I had never seen anything more perfect. That's when my wife, my love, my angel, the woman I chose to share my life with, the woman I chose to have my child, lifted her head slightly 
bared her teeth and sank them into my baby's face. I still hear my daughter scream when I close my eyes at night. There are some sounds that stay with you, permeating your thoughts and invading the clean, quiet spaces of your psyche. She didn't just bite her either. She latched on and shook like a rabid dog. Her mouth foamed and her blue eyes rolled back in her head so that only the whites showed. I blacked out, I think. My body acted, but my mind left the scene. The next thing I knew, I was holding my baby whose face was sticky with blood and tears. My wife was on the floor of the nursery with a broken neck and a small chunk of our daughter's face hanging out of her mouth. I was originally charged with a second degree murder. The prosecutor dropped it to manslaughter after my attorney threatened to parade photos of my daughter's face in front of the jury. After some further negotiation, it was agreed that I wouldn't do any jail time. Instead, I would spend a few years in a facility where I could get some help. At first, I was in the highly restricted ward, but the docs soon figured out that I wasn't really a danger to anybody, so they moved me to a facility where I have a lot more freedom. I kind of like it here. The only downside is that I don't get to see my daughter as much as I want, but my therapist says I'm doing well, so I'm hoping to be out soon. My progress reports have been so good that now I'm in Class A, which basically means that I have more privileges, including internet access for 15 minutes a day. Still, I can't leave here, which means I'm stuck missing my baby girl. I can't wait to see her again. It will be hard to look at that scar on her face. She'll have it forever, probably, but she's alive. She's safe. I had taken solace in that fact until a few days ago, when I received a letter through the mail center. Well, I thought it was a letter. Turns out it was just a blank piece of paper folded around a photo of my daughter lying in her crib. Tears burned in my eyes as I remembered the way that crib looked in our old nursery. My wife and I had spent months perfecting it, choosing the sky blue wallpaper, the pale pink throw rugs, the wooden rocking chair. The crib simply didn't look the same in my sister's plainly designed guest bedroom, but it didn't matter. It was kind to think that my sister would send me a photograph. That's when I looked at the envelope again and realized there was no return address. I didn't even know you could send mail without that. Maybe my sister used one of those stickers with the address printed on it and it had fallen off somehow. Or maybe the staff had removed it or switched the envelopes. But why would they do that? At that point, I looked more closely at the photo. I don't know how I didn't notice it before. Wrapped around one of the white wooden bars of the crib, I saw olive-colored fingers with long red nails. I think I may have hyperventilated or something. Perhaps I passed out. When I woke up, a nurse was offering me water and asking if I felt dizzy. That's when I decided to write my story. This isn't an exercise in creative fiction, and this isn't some sort of cathartic soul-bearing confession meant to ease my conscience. This is a warning. My wife is rotting in the ground, but I'll be damned if I lose my baby too. I don't know what you want. I don't know if you're a witch or a demon or the devil incarnate. But I do know that I'll be out of here soon, and I guarantee you that I am more deadly than any ghost or ghoul you've ever encountered. Stay the fuck away from my daughter. Nine one one. What's your emergency? <laughs> We've all heard this phrase before. They are the first ones to answer to the horrors of the night. You hear them knocking at your door, and you invite them right in. No questions asked. You welcome complete strangers, blindly assuming that they're there to help. In a quiet little town whose name I can't quite recall, a peculiar emergency unit circles around at night. One that won't alleviate pain. 
but thrive in it. I promise you, they're not here to help. Locations changed for anonymity. There is a suburb of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in which, between the hours of midnight and two in the morning, it tends to be a very poor idea to call for an ambulance. Your stubbed toe, your drunk friend, even your poor sick grandmother with her heart failure. Do not call for help. Stuff the ailing person in your car and drive them to the hospital. Or if it's you with your stubbed toe, suck it up, buttercup. Grab the ibuprofen, pick up the English lit textbook you keep hidden under dirty gym clothes as a landmine, seemingly designed for just this foot-annihilating purpose, and go to bed. And if anyone else home with you happen to lose their collective shit and punch 911 into his or her phone, well, then... I would heartily suggest closing all the curtains and sliding something heavy in front of your door. Maybe some more of those oversized paperweights you paid too much for and haven't cracked open yet this semester. Whatever you do, don't look outside. Even when you first hear it. It won't sound right, the wail of the siren. Sounds British, maybe. The high-low contrast you've probably only heard in the chase scenes of a spy movie set in Europe. British with a dying battery. Sick and discordant. The worst symphony you can imagine. Every instrument tuned flat or sharp, in a manner incoherent with its fellows. The throbbing red glow will begin to creep in through the cracks in the curtain, just as the wailing fades. Silence will follow before a scraping at the door. No, they won't knock. They'll just try to come in. I can only warn you, though I'm not sure you'll believe me. I dismissed the stories, too, when I first began working EMS for the township three years ago. I was there for about a week before I first noticed something was off. The orientation protocols seemed straightforward as I spent a few days on daylight shifts, with an experienced paramedic to learn the various procedures unique to the company. It wasn't until I was deemed competent and sent out on my own that I was handed a schedule. I scanned the open shifts. A few 12 hours were available, starting at noon and ending at midnight. Most of the open shifts seemed to start at 2 in the morning. I'd worked EMS for a few years at this point, so I was no stranger to absurd shift lengths and start times. But this seemed particularly dumb. I decided that my new manager had a special grudge against healthy, well-rested employees with functioning circadian rhythms, shrugged, then stuffed the paper into my bag. I trudged downstairs to the crew room and kicked off my paratrooper boots. They were scuffed to hell, but I didn't much care at the time. 16 calls in 12 hours. I should have stayed out in farm country. At least my last training shift was over. I pulled the schedule out of my bag and secured it to the inside of my locker door with a piece of medical tape and stared at it. Jake, a medic about my age and roughly twice my circumference, rounded the corner from the bathroom. All right, man, it's been a long day, but this schedule is tripping me up, I said. He stared at me with bleary eyes. What do you mean? He finally replied. So this first line ends its shift at midnight. Second line, it doesn't start till 2 a.m. Who, uh, covers the overlap? An EMS service runs 24-7. There's no such thing as a coverage gap. 
My sleep-deprived, caffeine-addled brain churned, and Jake stared at me in such a way I became concerned that perhaps my struggles were now somehow audible. Neurological connections churning and growling like a ruminating stomach. Finally, he spoke. Yeah, you just go home at midnight if you're done then. Come in at two if that's what it says. Jake, I should mention, was probably an idiot. But who works from midnight to two? Jake scratched his neck and turned to leave, mumbling to the door as he pushed through. Nobody from this station, that's for sure. A week later, I was finishing up a quiet Saturday noon-to-midnight shift. The day was chilly and night came early thanks to a small storm front moving in, coating the neighborhoods with a fine mist. God's just spitting a little, Jake said with a knowing grin. I stared at him probably a little cruelly, as I had to wipe tobacco chews dribble from my chin before responding, because my mouth was hanging open stupidly. A perpetual countenance for me, it seemed, when working with the ogre. Maybe it's piss, I replied, airballing a hoagie wrapper at the overflowing trash can across the ambulance bay. Everyone has their kinks. Blaspheming my colleague's lord and savior on the clock seemed to have a negative influence on our relationship. But in any case, it meant he stormed out the door at exactly midnight and left me alone to work on my run charts. Two hours until next shift was in. I hammered away for a bit until my vision started to blur and my documentation became incoherent. I read aloud to myself. Patient states that patient said that pain felt like an elephant shitting on his chest. Pain is severe and is only short of breath when he walks. I decided to pack it in for the night and finish my stellar composition next shift. I zipped my bag and stood to leave when the station's klaxon sounded and our tones dropped. Station 910, Station 910. Respond priority one for a domestic. 747 South Manor Avenue. Neighbors report screaming. At least one victim, possibly stabbed. I stood frozen, staring at the radio, listening waiting to finally hear who responded to calls at 1 a.m. in this town. Nothing but static came over the air. The monitor screen above the radio blinked once with a status message. Unit 7 responding. The call sign corresponded with no standard dispatch code or nomenclature in the county. Control came over the air again, the voice sounding oddly subdued. Copy Unit 7. I have you responding. The hell was Unit 7? I spit an old and thoroughly desiccated lump of tobacco into a styrofoam cup and chewed around the lip, thinking. South Manor was four blocks away from the station. I had no idea where this Unit 7 was coming from, but a quick response would be crucial for a patient with a stab wound. At least I could get there and control the bleeding until the transporting unit arrived. I jogged to the garage and jumped into the SUV, tearing out of the bay and keying my mic. Control, be advised, Squad 910 also responding to South Manor. A burst of static came over the radio, followed by a deadened silence. I began to suspect the frequency had been killed when dispatch came over again, urgency cracking in the normally indifferent tone. Squad 910, Squad 910, advise you return to quarters immediately. Police will not be responding to the scene. It will not be safe. I repeat, scene will not be safe. Do not proceed. 
I sat at the end of the driveway, red lights spinning, tapping my hand on the wheel, wondering what in all hell was going on. Police not responding to a stabbing? My conscience, that battle-worn, decrepit, only partially functioning thing, roused itself and convinced me to peel out and hurtle down the hill toward the call and whatever awaited me there. It whispered that somebody was hurt and needed help, that I needed to forge ahead and be the hero I knew I was. It, like my colleague Jake, was also an idiot. I approached the turnoff to South Manor and knew there would be one more chance for me to get out of all this. Squad 910, how do you copy? Can you hear me? Cancel your response. Cancel your damn response. Scene is not safe. Scene will not be safe. Panic now. A serious breach of radio etiquette. Control, show Squad 910 pulling on the scene. I will advise Unit 7 of any hazards I find. I answered, jumping at a series of radio squelches that blasted from the squad's radio, despite the volume control set low just as before. Control crackled over the airwaves again, barely audible. Copy Squad 910, marking you on scene. Expect no more status checks from this end. You're on your own. Report in if you return to service. The rain fell steadily now as I surveyed the street, lit softly in amber by the street lamps above. I flipped a switch and the red flashers from the SUV clicked off, leaving only the squad's LED headlights emanating forth, high beams raking mailboxes as I squinted to decipher the tiny numerics on them between the rhythmic sweeps of the windshield wipers. 761, 755, 749, 747. The only house on the street with a porch light on, the front door wide open. A woman filled the empty frame, hunched over and stumbling toward me, holding a towel to her abdomen. I got out and waited for her, half crouched and ready to spring for the driver's seat. I yelled out, Are they still here? She shook her head, halfway across the yard now. He's gone. He's gone. What have I done? I motioned for her to sit on the curb and leaned her back to assess the wounds. She grabbed for me as I removed the towel, smearing blood down my forearms before finding purchase around my wrists. I asked her name and she told me it was Sarah. Sarah needed bright lights and cold steel, an operating table and some friendly trauma surgeons to boot. I told him we could talk about it. She spluttered. Maybe it wasn't such a bad thing. We make enough. You make enough? I said, trying to keep her talking as I shoved trauma dressing saturated with hemostatic agent into her wound. She stared blankly at me as the headlights from my truck illuminated her face, the pink sheen of her teary cheeks disappearing before my eyes. Money, she said. We make enough money. A baby, it wouldn't be so bad. She pulled me to her and I could smell her the stark contrast of flowers and iron, perfume and blood. She applied the first to herself, perhaps as an extension of personality, integral to any memory of her had by a loved one. But the blood was utterly and uniquely hers. It covered my arms and I could smell the sweetness of rose petals and the sickness of exsanguination. This would be my memory of Sarah. I looked around the deserted street and saw nothing. No people at their windows, no porch lights flickering to life in the fog. I was alone as I struggled to keep Sarah's lifeblood inside her. She held fast to me, anchoring herself to this world, grasping into my job shirt. My training ran like a computer program behind the mounting panic I felt in my chest. I looked at Sarah and could visualize the blood spreading through her abdomen and into her pelvis. 
She needed a blood transfusion, but all I had was a bag of saline in my squad. It would have to suffice to maintain a blood pressure and perfuse vital tissues with the blood that was left. Sarah, I need to get supplies from my bag. Just over there, okay? I said. I eased her into a fetal position so she could cradle the dressings to her stomach. Hold this as tightly as you can. Help is on the way. Sarah asked me to stay, and with each word her breath clouded in the air. It felt as though a giant freezer had opened above us. I stood and noticed the rain had stopped, and so had the wind. I'll never forget the silence. It was a void, filled only with muffled sobs from Sarah as she began to die. I heard the wail a moment later. It reminded me at first of the old whale noises CDs my mom used to play me as a kid. Probably the most traumatizing thing I remember from my childhood was when my mother would lovingly place me in bed, click off the light, hit play on the stereo and shut the door, whispering that she loved me. I fell asleep every night, only when fatigue overcame the horror I felt listening to underwater behemoths howl mating calls at each other from a few hundred miles away at volumes that would shatter a human skull if it happened to be too close to the source. The siren sounded kind of like that. Organic, in a way. Stylized like a Euro siren, but distorted. I felt a wave of nausea, and a feeling I can only describe as wrongness. An immediate and pervasive need to flee. But the suburban cul-de-sac hellscape offered me nowhere to go. There was only one way out, and I could already see the red glow pulsing through the mist as it crept around the corner a few blocks away. It moved slowly. In fact, the ambulance seemed incapable of going much faster. It was an old tub that looked like it just rolled out of the 70s. It was unpainted, all metal and dull chrome. A single red light spun on the cab as Unit 7 killed its siren a block away. There was no engine noise as it glided to a stop ten feet behind my squad. Sarah grabbed my leg and I knelt beside her. She stared past me with fear etched across her face. Who's that? She asked. I I'm not sure, I said. But they're here to help. I knew it was a fucking lie before the words passed my lips. I looked down and held her eyes with my own about to offer the banalest, most bullshit platitude in my arsenal, when I heard two doors slam shut behind me, a shuffling of boots on pavement, whispers that sounded like radio interference. I couldn't turn around. My shoulders were sinews of iron and my neck made of marble. I was transfixed by Sarah's face. Her eyes widened to an impossible diameter, mouth agape, breath coming in stutters like a mammal shoved into an icy bath. My terror existed only as a reflection of her own as my body wouldn't allow me to turn and glimpse whatever horror approached. I touched her face and the words came. It'll be okay. I felt a blow from the right and careened a few yards across the damp grass. Diagnostics ran again. Right arm limp, minimal pain unless moved, shoulder likely dislocated, impinging blood flow and sensation. Difficult to assess for any fractures to the long bones at this time. Severe pain upon inhalation and movement. Probable broken ribs. I rose into a sitting position with a cry and looked back for Sarah. The creatures had her stretched supine between them, one pulling her by the arms, the other holding her ankles. They looked human from my vantage, wearing neon paramedic jumpsuits, moving like spacewalkers in microgravity. 
Sarah screamed in agony as they began carrying her to the truck, shuffling to a line and then loping in perfect synchronization toward Unit 7. I yelled out. They paused. The being carrying Sarah's feet squawked, and it sounded like a radio having its antenna pulled loose. The crew seemed to be communicating, standing motionless as Sarah squirmed between them, her movements feeble now, her screams just a pattern of whimpers. The dressings had come loose and fallen from her belly, soaked with blood and littering the yard. I stood with great effort and moved toward the ambulance. My fucking conscience, man. Why couldn't I just let her go? I pitched and stumbled forward, gaining momentum on the downward slope of the yard. I was a few feet away when the creature holding Sarah's legs dropped them and turned to me. Time seemed to stretch then and distort, insufficient for me to change course, but plenty for me to regret every action I'd taken that night. Its face was a writhing mass of flesh with no discernible features, just bubbling, boiling skin, like a bag of rotten meat full of maggots. I impacted the beast with crushing force and my knees crumpled and I went down. Agony, fear, revulsion, confusion all pulsed through me like the blood in my temples. When I opened my eyes, the creatures were gone. I saw them open the rear doors of the ambulance and toss Sarah in. They climbed in and Unit 7 proceeded to drive silently into the turnaround of the cul-de-sac and pass my broken body on the way out of the plan. The inner patient compartment was visible for an instant through the rear windows. I saw both creatures sitting on a bench, one on each side of a cot. I saw Sarah lying on the cot, bare flesh, stripped naked, crimson covering her torso. I saw them begin to dig inside her, entering through the wound in her belly, displacing organs and pulling her intestines out and piling them in her lap. I saw that she was still alive face twisted in exquisite torture. Every day I try to convince myself that she wasn't. That at that moment she couldn't possibly have been able to feel pain or fear, but they kept her alive, I think, for some purpose known only to the creatures of Unit 7. Sarah would have plenty of time to suffer in terror, and wonder why the last words anyone ever said to her were a lie, right after the man she loved stabbed her for the crime of carrying his child. Since that night, Unit 7 has been my obsession. It's not hard to find, you see, but answers are not so easy to ascertain. In the meantime, all I ask is that you be wary when things go wrong in the middle of the night. If you must call, maybe peer through the window first. Open it just a crack and listen. And if you see Unit 7 glide to a stop at your curb, bar the door and hide. You might be tempted to meet them, especially when racked with whatever ailment made you dial in the first place. In a moment of panic, you may even invite its crew into your home. However, no respite will be found in their care. Their true motives are inscrutable. Your suffering does not concern them. They are collectors of human misery, and they are nothing if not proficient. That must be one of our permanent guests. They always use the back door. God knows why. Well, God doesn't really have anything to do with that bunch. Care to meet them? 
Hey, where are you going? We're in the middle of a storm, are you crazy? Fine, but don't blame me if you turn once more. Knocking at her back door. <laughs> Do come again, though. We'll be waiting for you. We just love to have you around. I'll have new stories for you. I promise. <laughs> Goodbye, my friend. Till we meet again. In this life. Or the next. And now it's announcement time. Before you leave, I would like to take a moment and thank the people who provided their voices to read these horror tales, along with everyone else who has been involved with bringing these horrific tales to life here at the Cursed Inn. We'd also like to send a special thanks to the talented writers at Malatopia for sharing their stories with the Cursed Inn. You can find more about our partners on our description page. Now, if you're a writer and you think your story is sinister enough to be featured on our podcast, or if you'd like to volunteer as a voice actor, send us your demo to thecursedin at gmail.com. We're always looking for new stories and talents to scare our guests. Don't forget to check out our page on Facebook and Twitter for updates. We'll see you very, very soon.